0: This morning's scripture text comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and I will be reading them to you, so please give God's word your full attention. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to your church, and we pray now, as we reflect on this, your word, you would speak to us, to each one of our hearts and minds. You would speak to us so clearly through this, your word, we would know we have met with you, and having met with you, we would understand more deeply what it means to be your people, what we have received And what we are called to do, speak through this, your word, your servants are listening. We ask you this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, I want you to imagine it's the second century and you're in the Mediterranean. The church has been under extreme persecution from the Roman empire for some time, but it is getting worse and worse. And Ignatius, a bishop of the city of Antioch, who's roughly 80 years old, is arrested He's sentenced to death, and he is sent to Rome to be executed in the Colosseum. And on his long journey to Rome, he writes a series of letters. We have seven of them in our possession still today. And he wants, as he heads to Rome to die, to instruct the church as to how to live in such a difficult time when Christianity is so deeply despised. And you know what he argues in those letters? especially in the letter to the church in Ephesus. You know what he, he argues the church ought to commit themselves to doing? They ought to do good. He argues in doing good, the Christian community could instruct the lost world through their actions. Do good. Now imagine it's the fourth century. We're in the city of Cappadocia, maybe four and a half hours north of Antioch by our cars today. And the church is in the midst of an incredible battle. There's a party within the church called the Arians who do not believe Jesus is as divine and as eternal as God the Father. There's another party that's questioning the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the church is splitting and fragmenting everywhere you look. And one man named Basil of Caesarea has taken leadership and taken a A a profound role in defending what we now call the Trinity, Orthodox theology, that God is uh, three persons in one being. And the weight of the church's Orthodox teaching about what we believe about God is on this man's shoulders. And yet, in his most famous sermon, and in his most persistent call to his church, do you know what he told his people to do? To do good. He used his life to lay the foundations for public hospitals, much as we know them today. His call? Do good. Now let's imagine it's the 13th century. We're in Italy and the church has grown in power. It has become socially accepted so much so that the political power has fallen and collapsed onto the power of the church. The church is a place for great wealth, the offices of the church have been corrupted. Though the eastern front of the Christian empire is being threatened by Islam, the church has the resources and money to call for a war, a crusade, to attempt to fight this back. And one man finds this difficult and even reprehensible. A man of great wealth renounces his wealth, and he travels around preaching, calling for reform. And you know what he preached everywhere he went? Do good. He preached this the deeds you do may be the only sermon some person will hear today. Do good. Now we're in the 16th century, we're in Europe, we're in Germany. The whole map of Europe is being reconfigured by religious and social upheavals that had as their catalyst the Reformation. And the church is in an intense debate about how salvation works, how God's grace interacts with our good works. And at the center of that debate is one man, Martin Luther, who was dogged that our good works contributed nothing to our standing before God, nothing to our salvation. And despite his persistent preaching against good works being the grounds of our standing before God, do you know what Luther consistently taught his people as he pastored and preached? Do good. Specifically, he was noted for saying somewhat tongue-in-cheek, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Now it's the 20th century in El Salvador. The country's in a state of crisis. There's been a revolutionary government that overthrew the establishment government, and the revolutionary government has proved to be more destructive than the previous administration. And to show forth their power and to put fear inside of the people, the revolutionaries have been systematically murdering Catholic priests in the public sphere driving fear in people's hearts and minds, warring against the church, telling the church that ultimately they were the ones that had power over El Salvador. And one priest, a bishop of San Salvador, preaches a sermon. And after he preaches that sermon, only a couple minutes later, while he's celebrating the Eucharist, he is assassinated. And you know what that sermon called the Christian community to do? Of course you do. Told them to do good. I told them that every Christian was to do all they could to do good for the sake of their neighbor. Sisters and brothers, do you realize by assembling together under the banner of Jesus Christ, saying we are God's people, recipients of His salvation, you are joining together with the people through great suffering, persecution, corruption, difficulty, People who have been recipients of great good and have been called now to do good. And the question I want to ask this morning is, why do we need to do good? Titus, this letter we've been looking at for some weeks now, for over 10 times, he's going to use two Greek words that are referring to doing good or being good. This letter is a treatise all about what it means to be good. He's writing to his Lieutenant Titus, who he's left in Crete, giving him a hard assignment, an island full of contentious people who lack self-control, island boys. He's saying, reign them in, teach them the goodness of God and the salvation that has come to them and teach them to be a people zealous for good works. Make them ready for good works. Pastor Linden preached on it last week. Paul repeats it again in chapter 3. And what I want to look at this morning is, why does Paul do that? Why are Christians called to do good? I think in this passage, Paul's going to show us at least two reasons why Christians are called to do good. First, we're called to do good because we're the recipients of God's goodness. And second, we're called to do good because we are now participants in God's goodness. So first, why are Christians called to do good? First, because we're recipients of God's goodness. Now, where do I see that? Well, we see this not so much in the very beginning of the passage where Paul starts with these instructions to the church, but in the middle, kind of this heart, uh, this, this sort of the heart or center of this passage, verses really um, three through seven or four through seven. Why are we to do good? Well, Paul says we're to do good because we're the recipients of the greatest good one could ever imagine. In verse 4, he says that based purely on God's character, His goodness, the goodness of God, His love and kindness, God intervened within history. Before you or I desired any salvation, He broke into history. Verse 5 continues and builds off of this, that not based on any work we have done, but all because of God's mercy, God broke into our world. And what did He do? He scrubbed us. He washed us with regeneration, with rebirth, with renewal. And he poured upon us the Holy Spirit richly. Most commentators believe that this is, at least historically, we've believed this is some sort of veiled reference to the sacrament of baptism. Paul's uh, depicting salvation as a whole through what happens at baptism, because no one is entitled to baptize themselves. It's always someone who baptizes us. And this, for Paul, this ritual is a reminder of how salvation works. It's a picture of the whole gift, it's a gift that God has promised. On times of old, through the prophet Ezekiel, when he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will make you clean. I will give you new hearts, and I will put my spirit within you. Paul is saying, that's exactly what God has done. Because of his goodness, because of his kindness, he's broken into history, and he has applied salvation to our lives. Verse six continues, saying that God's actions resulted in us being justified. That is, we are legally standing as though, not just that we're not guilty, but we're actually in the Right. We are on the right side of history, and we are now heirs, legal recipients of a fortune in an estate that previously wasn't ours. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying this, here is why you are to be good, because you have received so much good. You can only give good when you've received it. You can only give that which you have taken in. And Paul's argument is that salvation is ultimately God's work. It's God's gift from beginning to end. Maybe one way to say this, to try to get you to listen to what Paul is saying is this. God had far more to do with your salvation than you did. It's God's kindness on display from beginning to end. That's how salvation works. And Paul wants the congregation to never, ever forget this. So he's reminding Titus of this. Don't forget from beginning to end, you are recipient of God's goodness and kindness towards you. Maybe I could illustrate a little bit of what's going on this way. In 2019, a man in India named Raphael Samuel sued his own parents. And his complaint to to the courts was that he came into the world without consent. And in his opinion, this was just as heinous as being kidnapped or being placed into slavery. While Mr. Samuel had other political goals, uh, he illustrates for us something very, very important, and that is this that no one can consent to their birth. Now, why do you think that is? <laughs> think hard. Why can't you consent to your birth? Because you're not alive. And that's the point Paul is pounding over and over and again in this passage where he's going to call us to be good, to do good works, to be committed to doing good. Here's why. Because the salvation you received was ultimately like being born. It was a gift that came upon you without your consent. And salvation is not a gift that anyone would ever sue the giver over. You didn't consent to being born again any more than you consented to being born. It was all the result of the goodness of God. God's goodness brought salvation into our world when there was nothing we can do. Why are we to do good? Because we have received salvation 100% based out of the goodness of God. Nothing we contribute towards it. And this is important. You know why? Why? Because there's all kinds of bad motives that will lead you to do good. One is guilt. I don't know if anyone in here knows anything about being motivated by guilt. I don't know if anyone who is listening to this sermon knows a thing about guilt driving you to do things like, oh, I don't know, sit on a couch and watch a YouTube live service of a church. I know that's why some people stick with the service and stick with our church. Listen, if We do good because God has been good towards us. If we do good because God loves us, then we do not need to be motivated by guilt. There is nothing more than can be done. The fullness of salvation has come to us because of the kindness of God, not because of anything we have done. There is no need to do good out of guilt. But there's another reason to do good, and that's to do good out of pride. Believing yourself to be better than you really are. Looking down your nose at others, being condescending, assuming the Christian community has their act together. Thank you very much. And that's why we are kind to the poor and kind to our neighbors and coworkers. No one likes to receive this kind of goodness. And this kind of goodness forgets that the only reason we are called to be good is because we've been recipients of God's goodness. There was nothing inside of us worthy of God sending his son to die other than the fact that his love was upon us. And there is no reason we can do good out of pride. Now, this is why we are called to do good, because we've received good. But why are we called to do good? Now, next, we're going to look at we are called to do good because we are, the, we are now participants, not just recipients, but participants in God's goodness. Now, where do we see that? Well, if you look at some of the specific instructions that Paul gives, he reminds us to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Why? Because it's good for Christians to blend in? No, we're to do these things so that we're ready to do all kinds of good works. In fact, we're to stay away from speaking uh, evil of others, quarreling. We're to be gentle, perfect, perfectly courteous. Why? Because these are the good works God has prepared for us. At the tail end of the, ver- of the verse, verses 8, we, after Paul has just described to us the salvation that we have received, he's now saying that we are to be a people devoted to good works. And because we're so devoted to good works in verses 9 through 11, if there are people in the church who are committed to foolish uh, controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels, what are we to do? We're to warn them, but eventually they must go. They must be removed. Why? Because they will distract the church from what she is to be devoted to, which is good works. Paul is telling you and me this. We are not only recipients of God's goodness, but now participants of God's goodness into the watching world. Think of it this way. This is the, the, the story of where the Bible has been heading all along. What happened at creation? Did not God speak and, his, and, his, and the world came into existence and the spirit was hovering over the waters? And did God not out of that chaos bring out of that chaos order, eventually bringing all creation as we know it, including humanity? And what did he tell humanity as recipients of the gift of life? Kick up your feet, enjoy it. No, there was good work to do. Fill up the world with the goodness of God, image bearers of God all over the earth. And when humanity rebelled against God and chaos reigned on this earth, what did God do? Did we not, did we not again find water? God scrubbing, cleansing the earth with water and saving one man, Noah and his family, and as the water finished its cleansing work, did God not tell Noah, this recipient of the goodness and kindness of God, the salvation of God, did he not tell him to go and do good, fill up the earth with image bearers of God? And yet humanity still divulged into more chaos, more rebellion, lacking the reflection of God's goodness in all that they do and did. And what did God do? Did he not call out one man named Abraham? Did he not set his affection on this man purely out of his goodness, out of his mercy, out of his grace? And did he not from this man rise up a nation? But what happened to this nation? A drought came over the earth and they were enslaved in Egypt. But what did God do? Did he not use his strong arm again to break into creation? Did he not use water again to cleanse his people, to push them through these divided walls of the water, to save and rescue them through water, and yet crush their enemies as they pursued them, Pharaoh's armies pursuing them as the waters fell upon them? Did he not give them a new birth, a new lease on life through the waters? You see, that nation, as they were recipients of the goodness of God, what were they immediately called to do? To live out that goodness, to be bearers of that goodness and all that they did. Listen, Paul is telling Titus this. You are participating in a story as old as time, as old as creation. This is why I think Paul is using the ritual of baptism to talk about salvation in this passage. He's saying, look, the goodness of God is broken into history again. There's water coming on people again. There's a washing. There's new life. There's a second lease. You are the recipients of God's goodness. But here's the deal. As the prophets foretold. God's renovation plan is rolling out and now not only are you the recipients of God's goodness but you are to be the participants in God's goodness in his grand renovation plan as it rolls out over all the earth flooding the world with the goodness that we have received Paul is saying this friends God is making everything new and as recipients of God's goodness we must never forget That we were once in the same situation as all of those around us. Every non-believer you will bump into, you have far more in common with than you have different. That's what verse 3 is reminding us. But Paul is telling us that we are not just recipients of God's goodness. We are now participants in God's goodness. We are part of an ongoing story that started back in creation. And this is an important story that we must never forget. Because ours is a time with loud stories bursting onto the scene everywhere we look. There's a story of fear, a story of panic that so many of us are hearing every time we turn on the news or flip around the internet. Our culture is rejecting Christianity and we, we worry maybe we are on the wrong side of history. We question what the future of the church is. We see the steady decline. We wonder how committed to Christianity we should be. This story of fear is all around us and people in the church peddle it as well. And you know what the problem of the story of fear is? is it's going to keep you from doing good. Listen, friends, you have nothing to fear. Salvation has been accomplished by God. You are heirs to an eternity with our Savior. There is no reason for you to fear. Salvation is secure. New creation is being poured out. The whole world will be flooded with it. Stay away from fear. Fear. But there's another story coming out, and unfortunately it's coming out here in Canada, just like it is elsewhere in the world, and that story is a story, as one pastor calls it, a story of conquest. The idea that the church is now called to dominate the civil authorities, win the battles, especially in court. That's how we're going to save the culture for Christ. Listen, there, there is a call upon the Christian community to be involved in the public sphere, but things have gotten silly fighting lockdowns, fighting mask mandates. They might have their place in our individual lives as citizens, but not as the church. You know why? You want to know what's wrong with the story of conquest, hearing it over and over again? It is so hard to love your opponents when all you want to do is dominate them in the courts. It is so hard to love your opponents when all you want to do is crush them. God saved us so that we not only would be recipients of His goodness, but would become participants in his goodness, seeking the goodness, the flourishing of his goodness towards our neighbors. In the same way God's goodness came upon us when we least deserved it, we turn now our attention and focus on everyone who we cross paths with and pour out our goodness upon them as well. Friends, it's the 21st century now, and here we are in Toronto. We're living in the pages of church history. For the first time in our lives, we got to see pastors speak our language that look like us get arrested for defying government orders. We saw churches with fences around them and pastors continuing to start uh, um, this continuing to start uh, engaging with and battling with the civil sphere. At the same exact time, what else did we see? We saw churches that refused to open their doors, churches that would prefer to uh, close Rather than open up again for two years, friends, we are living in the pages of church history, and there's all kinds of stories around us telling us that society's secularizing, that we're in trouble. People around us are hearing all kinds of other stories. The elderly are hearing that they are unworthy of life. What it means to be a human being is being redefined. Our society is a society, society uh, driven by greed. Narcissism is considered a virtue. Ours is a vain society. How are we to live? What do you think we're called to do? Well, I hope by now you know. We're called to do good. We've received more good than we could ever quantify, calculate, or understand. In God's salvation earned for us by Jesus, the goodness of God has come upon us. And it is so certain that the call now is for us to participate in this goodness by leaving here, setting out to do good works. Let's pray.